You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, teacher, photographer, mom, and volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners. So how's the summer going, Michelle? It's going pretty well. I'm keeping busy with classes and gardening and just being outside. I miss <laughs> being at the lighthouse, though. Yeah, well, glad to hear you're keeping busy. It's a, definitely a different kind of summer for a lot of us. Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse is not open for tours. That's true at a lot of lighthouses this summer. Some of them are open on a limited basis, but definitely a different kind of season with the pandemic and everything. But Definitely. Yeah, yeah. We're... Uh, Hoping things get back to normal, but there's a lot of uh, virtual events going on. The U.S. Lighthouse Society has had some virtual events, so people should keep an eye open for those. We're trying to keep lighthouses in the public eye anyway, and things will eventually get back to normal. For anyone who's listening to this podcast for the first time, uh, on this podcast, we discuss all kinds of things related to lighthouses, history, preservation, the arts, really just about anything that relates to lighthouses. The podcast was launched in June of last year. This is episode 73 of Lighthearted, scheduled for release on July 27th, 2020. I was looking to see what historical events have happened on July 27th. On this date in 1929, the Geneva Convention dealing with treatment of prisoners of war was signed by 53 nations. On a lighter note, on July 27th, 1940, the animated short, A Wild Hare, that's H-A-R-E, A Wild Hare was released, introducing the character of Bugs Bunny. This year, July 27th, is the 48th birthday of the actress and comedian Maya Rudolph, who once said, and I quote, I'm always learning when I'm surrounded by great people. In every experience, I feel like I'm learning. I'm not like, oh good, I'm done. I don't have to learn anymore, end quote. Oh which is why I feel like this podcast has been such an education. Every week I learn so many new things from our guests. This week we get to go to British Columbia on the west coast of Canada. Have you ever been to that part of Canada, Michelle? I have not, but British Columbia and other parts of Canada are definitely on my travel bucket list that I would like to get to. I visited uh, the southern part of British Columbia in 2015 uh, when I was working on a book on West Coast lighthouses. I'd love to see more of British Columbia. It's really beautiful there. The northwest of the U.S. and up into British Columbia is a really beautiful area. And I got to photograph about 15 lighthouses in B.C. Uh, Again, I I loved what I was able to see. But I didn't make it to Cape Beale, the remote light station we're talking about today. Our guest today, Karen Zacharuk is one of the small number of official lighthouse keepers left in the world today. Michelle, please help me tell our listeners about Cape Beale Light Station in British Columbia. Sure, Jeremy. Barclay Sound on the west coast of Vancouver Island was named by and for Captain Charles William Barclay, who explored the area in 1787. With local maritime commerce in the Sound growing, the high cliffs of Cape Beale were surveyed for a lighthouse in the early 1870s. The Cape was named for John Beale, who was the ship's purser on Barclay's voyage. 
Beale was one of a group of six men who were killed by Indians after they went ashore in the vicinity of Washington's Destruction Island. Construction at the Cape, around 150 feet above the water, was a challenge. The building material for the wooden lighthouse and other buildings were landed about six miles from the building site, and local Indians were employed to move the materials through the thick rainforest. A 31-foot-tall wooden tower was constructed with a powerful second-order lens in the lantern. One of the worst shipwrecks in the area occurred in January 1906, when the American passenger steamer Valencia struck the rocks near Cape Beale in dense fog. 117 people died in the disaster, through no fault of keeper Tom Patterson and his wife Minnie. Minnie Patterson spent 36 straight hours at the Telegraph Key during the ordeal, and she fed and cared for some of the survivors. But it was another event later that same year that brought her her widest fame. As daylight arrived on Cape Beale on December 6, 1906, the area was under assault by 80-knot gales and heavy seas. Keeper Patterson spotted a crippled vessel offshore, its masts reduced to kindling. The ship was the bark Coloma out of San Francisco. The captain and crew of 10 clung desperately to the stunted remains of the mizzenmast as the ship was threatening to break apart. Keeper Patterson attempted to summon aid by telegraph, but the line had been severed by the storm. Six miles away off Bamfield Creek, the lighthouse tender Quadra lay at anchor. The best hope was for Minnie to try to reach the Quadra while Tom stayed on duty and watched to see if the ship struck the rocks. Minnie left in such a rush that she was wearing her husband's slippers and clothes that were not nearly suited for the harsh conditions she'd encounter. Minnie's first obstacle was the deep, frigid water that separated the light station from the mainland. She decided to not take the skiff and instead made her way through icy seas that reached to her waist. Knee deep in mud during part of the journey, she fell numerous times in the face of hail and wind. When she arrived at Bamfield Creek, the rowboat Minnie expected to find was nowhere in sight. She continued to a home where Annie McKay, daughter of former keeper Cox, joined her. The two women launched a skiff and reached the Quadra four long hours after Minnie Patterson had left the lighthouse. The men on the Coloma were soon taken aboard a longboat from the Quadra just as the bark was breaking apart. Minnie was the sudden focus of attention for many newspapers and she received a gold medal and a silver plate from the Canadian government. The original wooden lighthouse at Cape Beale was replaced by a modern 32-foot skeletal tower in 1958. Today, Cape Beale is one of 27 light stations that remain staffed on the coast of British Columbia. A resident keeper maintains the navigation equipment and buildings, monitors weather and sea conditions, and watches for emergency situations. For more than a dozen years, the keeper has been Karen Zakaruk. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Karen. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking with Karen Zakaruk. Uh, Karen, thanks so much for speaking with me today. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, well, it's great speaking with you as well. I'm looking forward to this interview. Well, I do really appreciate it. And it's not every day that I get to speak with a real official lighthouse keeper. There are not many official lighthouse keepers left in the world today. So it's... Uh, uh, no, it is a, 
it definitely is a rare job, that's for sure. And actually, most of the, the official lighthouse keepers in North America are on the, the west coast of Canada. So again, you're, you're one of a, a rare breed today. So it's a real pleasure. <laughs> Karen, you're an avid sailor. And uh, so I guess you've had a lot of maritime experience, but what exactly led you to become a lighthouse keeper? Well, I've always been, I've always enjoyed being part of the maritime community. And I I did grow up in a small fishing village on the north end of Vancouver Island. And uh, so I was around water a lot, fishing with my dad and uh, living even in a logging camp out there with my dad for a while. And, um, but actually when my husband and I, when we, we, we met in, in high school and uh, when we graduated, we bought a, a sailboat uh, right after graduation and we lived on, on the sailboat for seven years and we sort of wanted a change in, in careers. And so we took a, a bridge watchman program, uh, which is, we were planning on going to work on the Coast Guard ships. But when we applied at the Coast Guard base in Victoria, we, we sort of applied for everything and. Uh, relief light keeping came up first for myself and uh, lifeboat stations for my husband and uh, so we sort of went with that and um, I sort of always dreamed of living on an island with no cars (laughs) so uh, yeah sort of when I first started doing relief light keeping I just fell in love with it and um, um, we had been living on the boat for seven the sailboat for seven years so I was sort of ready to start to move into a house and uh and just, uh, you know, kind of living sort of a simpler, simpler life. And uh, that's sort of how we started. And we've been doing it for now, both of us, for about 20 years. So my husband's with the lifeboats and I'm with uh, light, light stations. And yeah, it's uh, so that's how we sort of got into it. So Canada still maintains 27 staffed light stations in British Columbia. Is that correct? Is it still 27 stations? In it's BC? 27. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Along with uh, 23 in Newfoundland and Labrador and one in New Brunswick. And in this age of automation, when most lighthouses in the, the entire world have been de-staffed, why are some of the Canadian stations still staffed with resident keepers? Most of the Canada staff light stations are obviously in very remote areas of the coast. Uh, they're situated situated in key locations along the coast where you know the, the, there's treacherous waters and and the bad you know bad weather conditions as well. Uh, and along the BC coast, there's actually only two that you can drive to. So the rest are either boat and helicopter or helicopter only access. And in most of these remote areas, uh, the lightkeepers are, are really the only eyes and ears looking out over our coast. So uh, the weather reports that the lightkeepers provide seven times a day or more, if uh, of course if there's a special weather needed or a weather request, are actually very vital to the mariners and aviators, uh, as well as assisting Environment Canada in in forecasting weather. So um, lightkeepers provide a 24-hour service to the public, and they also uh, we uh, provide 24 hours radio watch listening for dis- distress calls, and uh, we assist the Marine Traffic and Communication Services in relaying distress calls that may come from like radio dead zones or or mariners just using a handheld radio. So there's a lot of areas there as well that you know there's there's incidents uh, because of the treacherous waters and and uh, and. You know, the as the lightkeepers sort of the the light stations being in these remote areas, they're a lot of times they're safe havens for for uh, mariners and aviators. Where were you stationed as a keeper before you went to Cape Beal? 
So I was just northwest of Port Hardy, uh, 15 miles uh, at the north end of Vancouver Island. And I was at a station called Scarlet Point. Uh, I was there for five years before I came to Cape Beale. And uh, and before that, I did relief light keeping for two or three years. So I was sort of situated. I would just go out for either, you know, from anywhere from three days to three months. I would be at a, at a different light station sort of up and down the coast. So I've been to most of them. But uh, I always thought, uh, you know, if I ever got to be full-time light keeper, I would love to uh, I fell in love with the, these two stations that I've been able to work at full time. So it's been, I've been very lucky that way. Cape Beale it was a place that you actually chose to go to. You, you requested that. Well, it, it, it came uh, available for a position and uh, sort of the, the fellow that was actually working here before he moved to the station that I was at, we sort of switched spots and uh, and then I was working here as assistant keeper for um, I guess it was three years before the principal keeper that was here before me. He was here for 33 years, so he retired, and then I I stepped up in, into his position as principal keeper since 2010 here. Now I know Cape Beale is fairly remote, but how remote is it? Uh, how difficult is it to get to and from the station there? It's a three-minute helicopter ride from Banfield, which is. Uh, Banfield is our nearest community and it's 150 uh, people that live there but Banfield is actually at the end of a 90 kilometer very rough gravel road so the nearest town that you can actually drive to on you know by comfortable highway road is is uh, Port Alberni and so we're from Banfield we're seven kilometers by hiking and a lot of that is through the mud or uh, we're five uh, miles by boat, which depends on the seas. Uh, the offshore swell, where we have a sort of a lagoon where you can bring a boat into, but it's a very narrow gap that you can get through into the sandy lagoon. And so the seas have to be below about two and a half meters to be able to ride the wave into the lagoon. So you have to, you know, the offshore swell meeting the, the lagoon can be pretty treacherous there. So it's a it's a difficult place to get into. Or, of course, by helicopter from Victoria, which is about, I would say it's about a 40 minute flight from Victoria by helicopter. You personally, uh, how do you get in and out normally? Uh, usually by uh, well helicopter or or lifeboat Banfield lifeboat station in in uh, in Banfield they they can come and get me or uh, I have a I also have a personal boat but yeah and then I, I've I, and I have hiked out before as well when we couldn't get a helicopter or a boat in so um, I've hiked my myself out and uh, and went out that way but uh, it's a very muddy trail so yeah you have to be prepared to get wet and muddy. <laughs> right. You have an assistant keeper, is that correct? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, um, him and his wife uh, work here as well. So um, it's uh, so when I when I take leave, uh, we can only take holidays when we, uh, you know, when we take vacation, we can only leave when we take vacation. So uh, often when I leave, uh, he can step into my position and uh, Lolly can step into his position because there's always has to be two people working at the station. So and you mentioned your husband uh, works at a Coast Guard lifeboat station? Yeah, so he's the officer in charge in Banfield, at the Banfield lifeboat station at the moment. And uh, yeah, so he's he's on the 47-foot uh, self-riding uh, lifeboats, the same. The U.S. Coast Guard has the same vessels as well, so that they run those out of uh, various spots on the coast here. And he's involved in search and rescue out of that station. That's, yeah. that's their primary job is the uh, search and rescue. 
Are there also occasionally relief keepers who come to your station? You said there always have to be two people there. Uh, so you do sometimes mm-hmm. have relief keepers there at times? Yes, we do. Yeah. So there's, yeah, whenever myself or my assistant keeper want to take vacation, a relief keeper has to come in mm-hmm. to, uh, to relieve us. So. And one thing I'm I'm curious about you mentioned how uh, it's it's somewhat of an ordeal to get getting in and out of there. So how how do you normally get supplies or some of the supplies delivered maybe by helicopter or how do, how does that work exactly? Yeah, so our our groceries uh, are delivered once a month with our mail and parcels uh, by helicopter. And so what we do is we place uh, an online order like you would in town uh, with uh, um, a grocery store and it's delivered to the Coast Guard base in Victoria. And then from there, it's flowing out uh, once a month uh, to the stations uh, all along the coast here. And um and then other supplies like, uh, you know, fuel for the, running the generators or gasoline or lumber, that all comes in by the Coast Guard, Coast Guard boy tenders. And uh, they will bring a workboat uh, and uh, sometimes a fuel barge through our gap here into the lagoon to refuel us. Usually they refuel us every six months with uh, diesel and then bring supplies in as well, like uh, like I say, lumber or, you know, if we need a new wheelbarrow or paint or such thing, things like that, they'll bring that in. And uh, so, and then all of our water, of course, is collected off our roof into cisterns. So that's for drinking and, uh, and washing and, and such. So um, in the summertime, we do have to conserve uh, quite a bit if we haven't had a lot of rain. And it's, uh, yeah, so, um, Anything other supplies like uh, just, yeah, the mail and parcels is usually brought in by helicopter. You just said a little bit about your water supply. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, How exactly do you get your water supply? So just when it rains, that's when we get water. So it just comes off our roof and then we have cisterns. uh, most of the stations have cisterns in their basement. Uh, half of the basement is converted into one, and it, it, mine's sort of a different one. Uh, we have it outside in, under an old uh, foundation that used to be an old duplex. Uh, so uh, we have that uh, a big cistern there. And uh, usually stations have each house has about an 8,000-gallon cistern, and then it, it goes through a sandbox and then through multiple filters, and we, we uh, bleach test it every month. And then it also gets tested uh, by the Coast Guard uh, Health Canada as well to make sure it's safe, safe to drink. And, um, yeah, so like I say, in the summertime, uh, we do have to conserve quite a bit, like if we're – doing our laundry we have to save the rinse water for the next wash you know it can get that bad or lots of the stations also have composting toilets in the house as well so that the water isn't wasted in the in the toilet cistern and um yeah so that's and there is some stations that can have their water delivered that you know some areas where they don't get as much rainfall as us on the west coast but uh um yeah we don't we can't really get our water delivered here so it's uh we just have to be careful it, this year has been really well been doing well because we've had quite a bit of rainfall so yeah we're not in any issue right now uh-huh that was i was about to ask if you do you normally get plenty of rain there uh we do but there has been years you know uh from sometimes from april to uh, July, where we haven't had any rain at all, where it's been a really dry year, but uh, that's happened a, a few times. But uh, this year, we've been lucky. It's been nice uh, not having to worry about that as much. 
I was thinking of asking you if you ever get lonely, but I uh, I have a feeling I uh, kind of am anticipating your your answer to that. First of all, it seems rare that you would ever be alone for any stretch of time. Probably uh, not much at all. But well, let me. I'll go ahead and ask the question: Do you ever get lonely there? <laughs> you know, that's a that's a quite a common question that I get, especially uh, you know from from people coming on the station that either have never been on a light station or they're just curious about it. And uh, you know, I, I'm I'm extremely happy here, and um, and I think that makes a big difference. I'm I, I don't actually get lonely because uh, I, I feel very connected to this coast, and I feel connected to the the villages along the coast. Um, you know, the, our Coast Guard and sort of Parks family, in a sense, uh, that come to visit. Uh, well, not right now because of COVID, but, you know, I, I, um, they, come, they come by quite often. Uh, um, I can talk to my family and, and friends as, as much as I want. And, and because I have, I'm lucky here to have good cell phone service. And, uh, and I get to see them period- periodically as well. But, uh, I, you know, I just, I guess I, I've been doing this for so long. It's sort of just become my life. And, and um, I, I, I'm, I'm just busy all the time, you know, uh, crafting or, or if I, when I'm not doing my, my main work, I'm, you know, in the evenings or whatever, I, I just like to pick up a new craft or, or learn a new craft. And, and uh, it just, you know, again, I get inspired being out here, just living amongst nature and, and um, I, I don't actually, I, I've, I've never really felt lonely at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. What sort of crafts do you like to do? I'm just curious. Oh, everything. I, I, I just love to try. I mean, I, I love knitting. Uh, I, I paint, um, woodwork, uh, um, cooking. I love cooking, um, sewing. Uh, right now I'm working on a, a, a marine canvas project right now and uh, just in this rainy weather when we can't be outside doing station work. So I'm filling my time quite often with different crafts. I, I don't have television, so I I uh, do, um, you know, I listen to the, the, the radio quite a bit. And, and uh, yeah, and cooking is a big passion, of course, too. So just being able to, you know, eat well and, and, uh, and enjoy that, uh, enjoy good food is important for me. Sounds great. Do you ever find yourself wishing you were closer to a, a, a town or a, maybe a, a more major town or a city or anything like that? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm really, you know, I like going out uh, to town once in a while, but I'm, I'm quite happy to get back to sort of the, just the, the peace and quiet out here. Um, um, you know, we don't, we don't hear any, you know, we don't hear vehicles or, you know, the odd boat will go by or helicopter, what we can hear them. But uh, it's it's very peaceful out here. And and uh, sort of I've always grown up in a small area, so I uh, quite enjoy that. You make me think of Kate Walker, the famous lighthouse keeper in New York Harbor, Robin's Reef Lighthouse, who was lived within almost a stone's throw of New York City, but hated with a passion going into New York City. <laughs> she much preferred life out at her lighthouse in the harbor. Yeah, you know, it, mm-hmm. it is, it is over, sometimes when you, I haven't been out to town for maybe six months or so, it, it is a bit overwhelming going into, into town and especially into a store. It's, you know, when there's so much choice, <laughs> it's, uh, it, I do find it overwhelming. So I just have to take a couple of days to get used to it and then, and then it's back to normal again. But, uh, yeah, it's, no, it is nice getting out to the city and seeing everything that's happening, the busyness and, and just all, you know, the people watching and things like that. But I, I love coming back to where I live here. 
you mentioned eating right. I, I'm wondering uh, if you're able to grow a lot of your own vegetables and herbs, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So we have a big garden actually going right now. Um, I'm able to get, you know, I, I I can fertilize that with some seaweed that I get off the beach. And uh, um, but yeah, we have a we have a garden that we sometimes we can get. We have a greenhouse as well, so we can get vegetables growing throughout the year like lettuce and green onions and and parsley and uh things like that but um no it's that's a big part of being here is being able to have that fresh food because with our groceries uh usually by the third week into our grocery month uh we call the last week we call it the scurvy week especially in the winter <laughs> because uh we're out of all the fresh veggies and it is nice to be able to go down and you know sometimes kale will still be growing outside or celery outside you know even it can it can handle the weather but uh um it's pretty important to have uh, the fresh stuff like uh is lettuce and things like that you know it only if you go to the grocery store it only lasts uh, maybe a week or like broccoli and uh, stuff like that so we make a lot of um like fermented vegetables like uh, sauerkraut and kimchi and uh, stuff like that just to keep uh, things going through the winter and you sort of learn what what lasts longer and what you have to use up first and then also we get to um, we can harvest uh, shellfish off the beach as well throughout the year most of the time if there's not PSP and um, so we can eat mussels and and gooseneck barnacles and urchins and things like that as well. Sounds good. Uh, I have a two-part question for you. What what kind of wildlife is uh, common around there? And part two of that is, have you had any encounters yourself with uh, dangerous animals there? Uh, yes. So we're in Pacific Rim National Park. So, uh, you know, there's there's quite a bit of wildlife here everywhere. Anything from, well, right now there's when I look out, there's right now there's about three gray whales that are feeding just off our reef line. Uh, the humpbacks are tend to be a little farther out at this time of year. Um, sea lions, you know, seals and things like that for marine mammals. And then we have resident bears that uh, live in our, we have an estuary down in the lagoon. So they're often there. This morning when I went for a walk, there was two of them down there feeding um, black bears. And then uh, we have wolves. I have uh, uh, I've seen tracks and we have a wildlife uh, parks, Canada wildlife uh, camera set up on the trail, which uh, recorded wolves. And um, I actually last year recorded uh, a mother cougar and her two kits walking down the, the trail together. <laughs> so there's wow. three of them. And that was a pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, that was in pretty incredible footage. So, uh, and then, so we do have uh, cougars as well, but um, a few years ago, I think it's about six years ago now, my husband was stalked by a cougar here, and mm -hmm. uh, it was actually just walked past the doorstep of my assistant keeper's house, and and uh, he called us to tell us that uh, the cougar just walked past his doorstep. But it was actually after my cat Cash, and uh, um, luckily Cash survived, but uh, we went down to to see where it might have gone to. And uh, my husband went down first because I had to go and do the weather report. But uh, I guess the cougar was near the helipad and uh, was crouched down and it was sort of wiggling its rear end like it was going to pounce. And then it uh, and then it laid down and it stayed there until we actually were we had to shoot a bear banger off and and scare it off. And uh, that was it didn't seem to be too afraid of us. So that was a. That was a bit of a scary encounter and, you know, growing up on the North Island, there, there's just, there's so many cougars up there and all those years that I grew up there, I, I actually never, I've never seen one in real life until, until here. And, uh, 
Um, so it was when we go out, we have to uh, carry what we call it's a cougar stick. What my my grandfather actually <laughs> used to make them, and it has sort of a spike on the end, and then we, it has bear bells and bear spray and a double-edged knife and a bear banger and a whistle all attached to this one stick so that we're always prepared uh, for any encounters. And then going down to do our weather report, uh, there's been a small bear here ever since uh, my my dog hasn't been here anymore. There's They've decided that they should take over this area. So uh, we have to haze them quite often when we go down to the weather, do the weather because they'll be eating grass near the Stevenson screen or the the precipitation gauge and uh, we have to scare them away to be able to just go into our weather so yeah it's uh they're they have they roam around here very close so we're just trying to keep them to make sure that they're they're afraid of us and they they, they act in the uh, you know the right way they, they run off usually when when we uh try to haze them so it's it's good behavior yikes <laughs> Um, I was once in a botanical garden in Corpus Christi, Texas, and had a cougar run across the path in front of me, and that's as close as I want to come. I only saw it yeah. for a couple of seconds, but there was no mistaking it. But uh, what oh, yeah. you know, uh, what you're describing is much scarier than what, what I what well, I I'm sure went through. That, mm -hmm. I'm sure that they uh, yeah, it is scary because they're they're sort of more unpredictable wildlife, and uh, I'm sure that I've you know, been watched many times walking up and down the, the, the old Banfield trail, the old telegraph trail to Banfield, but didn't know it, you know, they're just, they're just there and around and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it can be frightening for sure. You mentioned your cat Cash a minute ago, uh, and, uh, you were nice enough to email me some pictures of Cash and he, first of all, he's a twin, uh, of our cat, Eddie. They are yes. classic tabby cats, and they look so much alike. It's it's scary, and it is. Uh, yeah, it's really funny. They look exactly alike. Although uh, Eddie's a house cat, and I'm afraid he needs to go on a diet. He, he, you know, Cash Cash, I think is in better shape. He gets to run around outside and everything. But he's it's hilarious. You uh, sent me pictures of Cash dressed up in different clothes. It sounds it looks like he actually enjoys that, and you say he enjoys he greeting people. And uh, he's got a, he's got a lot of personality. It looks like he really loves life at the light station there. We call him our site inspector. So when the helicopter <laughs> lands and he's got his his coast guard tie and you know epaulets on there, he uh, his collar, he he just struts up to the helicopter like he owns the place and he does the whole kitty customs and, and inspects everybody. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, he's quite he's our station ambassador and. Uh, and he greets all the hikers when they come in and anybody that comes on station, he's right there making sure that they're, they're all, you know, greeted in, <laughs> by, by him. So well, that's yeah, hilarious. Um, he needs to be the star of a children's book. We, we don't want to promise anything, but uh, I, I hope, I hope that happens. Uh, he needs, yeah. he, he needs his own well, book. Yeah. And uh, we could add uh, my assistant keeper, their cat choppy. Uh, he's, yeah. uh, he's quite, Adventurous cat too, and he's he's had to uh, had the hard lesson of learning the tides, you know, over the years here, going across the lagoon, and then the tide comes up, and him having to swim back, <laughs> you know, in a in a two foot chop, but but probably what would seem like a six foot moderate sea to him, you know, and uh, and in the winter time, <laughs> so he's uh, he's quite the adventurous cat too, uh -huh. but they don't get along; they really don't <laughs> like each other. <laughs> well, <laughs> so that's a, too bad, yeah. The Adventures of Cash and Choppy sounds like a great series of children's books to me. 
to change the subject a little bit, I, I was reading that, that a lot of the uh, BC light stations have been largely converted to renewable energy sources. Has that happened at Cape Beale? Uh, you know what? It, it would have happened except for COVID. Uh, um, they were supposed to come back in uh, April, actually in March, I believe, and, and finish the project. So we have uh, all the solar panels sitting here and the inverters and, and the, the uh, everything sort of ready to go. It just needs to be installed and, and uh, hooked up. But uh, um, so, yeah, we were we were um, slated to get solar and wind power uh, wind power a bit later, but the solar starting first, and um, but that, that's been on hold now. But uh, there are, are quite a few stations that are up and running with the solar and wind, and it, it seems to be working quite well because normally our power comes from uh, um, a Deutz generator that's running 20, 24 hours a day, and um, uh, you know it's it's uh, it uses it's burning diesel, so it's it's it would be nice to, to you know, not burn as much diesel and, and just have more of a cleaner energy for sure. And that's what uh, was part of our oceans protection plan was to um, make the stations more green. And uh, it uh, it seems to be working where the stations have it up and running. So it's, it's, it's great. It's really great, actually. I'd like to talk just for a few minutes about rescues. I know that's a subject we could talk for more, more than a few minutes about, but there was a, a very dramatic rescue that happened at or close to uh, Cape Beale, close to the station in 1976. Could you yeah. tell us that story, please? Yeah, so uh, that uh, there was a vessel, a, a sane boat actually called the Bruce One, and they had left Vancouver. They were actually going to go and uh, um, fish herring in February. It was it, the incident actually happened on February 29th, 1976. So it was leap year. Uh, they got caught in bad weather and their vessel ended up, uh, the snow came in and uh, they lost their visibility and they ended up crashing into the rocks here just below Cape Beale. Two of the fellows were rescued uh, by the lifeboat out of Banfield and then the other fellow, was able, he actually made it to the shoreline but climbed up on the shore and was, of course, hypothermic by that time. Um, they had sent, uh, they could hear him yelling, but they couldn't get to him. So the U.S. Coast Guard actually sent a Sikorsky up from Port Angeles to assist in the rescue. And they spotted him on the rocks. They sent a basket stretcher down for him. And uh, he got in the stretcher and back up into the helicopter. And they were still searching for the other fellow that uh, actually ended up perishing. His name was Rusty Waters. And uh, while they were searching, I guess there was, a, you know, it was the weather was terrible. It was very low visibility. And um, but apparently there was a bit of me mechanical failure with the Sikorsky and it crashed right in front of the station uh, with all crew on board. The lifeboat was able to deploy a, a sort of a rubber uh, lifeboat, uh, like a rubber raft, and they were able to the lightkeeper uh, was watching from above and was able to guide them through the reef line because um, there's a treacherous reef that goes all the way around uh, Cape Beale here. And that's the big reason why we're here, of course. Um, but uh, so they deployed the life raft and or the, the lifeboat uh, rubber boat and they went in and uh, drove the boat right up into the doors of the helicopter. And it was pitch black because they had lost electricity and the power of the helicopter and everybody was able to climb into the life or to, into the rubber boat and get back to the lifeboat and get on board. But uh, that fellow that was, so that fellow was actually rescued twice because he was lifted up into the helicopter and then the helicopter crashed. 
And then he was lifted, you know, taken out of the helicopter. So everyone on the helicopter survived. And unfortunately, there was uh, one, the skipper of the, the Bruce one perished. But um, it was a it was a big uh, uh, rescue, you know, in the history books. And uh, so now the Coast Guard has actually has a hero class of vessels. And one of them is named the Martin Charles. And that's named after uh, the skipper that was at the lifeboat station for many years. Um, you know, it was named after uh, named after him for that incident. But so the we actually still have the wheel from the helicopter is still up by the tower here, and uh, hikers will often ask, you know, the question, well, where, "Where is that from?" So I'm able to tell them the story of of that incident that happened, and uh, yeah, it was um, it was it was a big deal, that's for sure. And I, I believe the U.S. came up uh, later and they recovered the helicopter from the shore or from near the shoreline here in front of Cape Beal. But um, it was a pretty treacherous incident. Yeah. Yeah. That's That's an incredible story. I'm wondering if you've personally been involved in any rescues around there or Mm -hmm. any of the other stations you've worked also. Yeah. So just, you know, uh, relaying maydays, uh, that's, I've done that quite a few times, um, assisting vessels in the fog, uh, towing in broken down vessels, uh, injured, even injured hikers that come in, um, just light tower and shoreline searches for missing vessels. Uh, in 2014, we had a big incident here. Actually, I wasn't, I was sailing up in Alaska at the time, but the keepers that were relieving here, um, there was, uh, they were down at the engine room, just checking the engines and they heard yelling from down there. And so they ran up to the top. There's 169 stairs from the engine room up to the top of the station. And they ran up to the top of the station and the fog had come in and they they heard, uh, still they heard these people yelling and they looked out and there was an overturned vessel with three guys in the water. One of the fellows actually got stuck up in the bow when the, when the vessel flipped, uh, but he was able to make it out. He did injure himself quite a bit, but uh, they didn't get a mayday call off. Uh, the fog was extreme you know coming in extremely quick and uh so if if the lightkeeper hadn't heard them uh, they likely wouldn't have survived um so that the lightkeepers had called the the banfield life which came out in about 20 minutes and were able to rescue and, and save all three of them and then their boat had drifted around and in back into our lagoon here um upside down but there's a so there's a wave the reef line out in front of the station there's it and we have a sort of a trevor channel that that goes along and into the elberny inlet but that comes off from the offshore waters here out in front of cape beale so there's there's a lot of current and uh and with the wind and you know it can it can create pretty treacherous water so there's a wave actually that the hawaiic first nations that uh from this area they call it the chupmeek and it means a seat sea monster, you know, a canoe eating sea monster. <laughs> so that's what they call that wave. And uh, that wave has actually over the years uh, gotten a lot of people here just, uh, you know, flip their vessels and that over. And um, even uh, there was two, there was a, a canoe voyage that was going around uh, um, and the canoes, both the canoes tipped over and they had about 15 people in each canoe and everybody was in the water, but the, the lightkeeper spotted them and was able to call for help and they were all, they were all rescued. So it's a, uh, it's pretty treacherous waters here. And, uh, you know, we're always keeping an eye out for, for vessels and, and that, that are, especially when they get a little too close to the reef line, they're fishing for the, the bottom fish there and, and uh, that wave will come up and, you know, it, you're not expecting it. 
So it, it can be scary. And of course, uh, incidents like that are one of the, the main reasons why there's still keepers at Cape Beale and some of the other stations. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's correct. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You think about this, the station's been here since 1874, so... Uh, Cape Beale is actually the oldest staffed station on on the coast, and uh, so there's always been somebody watching out for the past 146 years. So it's it's uh, you know it's these, the light stations are are, are very important uh, for um, you know assisting mariners and aviators. That's for sure. It's sort of the only eyes and ears out here. And there was a, another really famous rescue there in 1906 involving Minnie Patterson, the wife of a, a keeper there. I'm wondering if you ever find yourself thinking about uh, Minnie Patterson. Uh, yeah, so Minnie Patterson, I, I do find myself thinking about her quite a bit. Um, she, we do. I, I usually hike the trail uh, that you know every morning just for some exercise. I hike up to the top of the hill and back, and that's the same trail that she used. The it's the old telegraph trail. That actually, there's still some of the telegraph wire is still on that trail, and uh, that she used to use she used to go on to Banfield and uh, so, and then of course she, she across, she, it was when she had to cross the lagoon to get to that trail. Um, it was high tide. So she was soaking wet by the time she started the trail and it was in December and, you know, <laughs> it's just a, you know, awful to start the trail when you're soaking wet already. But, you know, they were, I, there's pictures of her. I have in the weather room with her, with her family and, and, uh, yeah, she's uh, she's definitely she was honored in our Mar- Victoria Maritime Museum uh, for her for her um, efforts that she did to, in 1906 there for both incidents with the Valencia and the Coloma and uh, yeah she's uh, she's definitely part of history here and on this coast that's for sure. So Karen, uh, before we wrap things up, I I want to ask you something that maybe this should have been the first question I asked you, but in the course of a, I don't know if there's such a thing as a typical day, but what are some of your duties that you might uh, might happen on a, on a typical day at the light station? Yeah, so uh, uh, we actually get up at uh, it's either three thirty or four thirty in the morning, depending on the time of year, uh, to do our first weather report. Uh, and then there's also there's seven weather reports that we do a day uh, besides uh, if there's any special weathers involved in that and or re- weather requests. So that's our main part of our job is is our it's our weather uh, weather collections, uh, local marine weather collections. Um, and then of course we're we're keeping watch uh, on the radio 24 hours a day. When we uh, when we're outside, we have a handheld radio that we're we're monitoring uh, all the time. And, uh, and there, you know, there might be helicopters coming in or a ship, uh, ship crew coming in to refuel us or, you know, work on some of our equipment. Like we have Highline and, and a Derrick equipment, um, you know, and, and then from there, uh, we start our day, you know, in the morning after breakfast, we'll maybe decide, okay, if it's a nice day, we might do some painting. There's a lot of red and white painting here. Uh, there's, we're cutting lawns, we're maintaining, uh, the generator doing oil changes and then fuel filter changes on the on the derrick engines um we're doing uh, electronics or uh, you know electrical work uh you know it could be we need to do some minor plumbing or carpentry work grounds maintenance uh from cutting our lawns which takes pretty much all day because we have to do it by you know with a with a weed whacker it's just too too steep to be mowing most of it from cleaning the windows on the 
the, the cupola of the tower to uh, maintaining our fire pumps, uh, you know, all our safety equipment. There's just, uh, you know, we're cutting back trails uh, that we have around the station just to be able to go and have a, a lookout for any sort of sh- shoreline search that we have to do. Yeah, it's just a... Uh, Every day is, is definitely not uh, the same. So uh, we're always, there's always lots. Of, it's a big station. So there's lots of, uh, lots of things we have to do around here. It's, I guess so. Yeah, I'm, I'm tired listening to you. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, and then we also, we also collect, uh, you know, the temperatures twice a day for Environment Canada and uh, the precipitation amounts. And uh, so we're doing, you know, and then we also do, uh, we help out with um, uh, the aquarium. So we were, we're recording any whale sightings that we see. Uh, we do beach bird survey for bird, Birds Canada, uh, RCMP Coastal Watch program we're part of, uh, looking out for suspicious vessels. Um, yeah, just basically uh, keeping watch as if, you know, that's the main part of our job as well. So we're sort of, there's lots, lots of stuff to do here. That's for sure. I guess so. So it, it doesn't really sound like the, uh, pandemic situation in recent months has necessarily affected your life all that much at the light station. Uh, not really. The, <laughs> the only thing is we're just not seeing anybody. So, uh, you know, the helicopter's only coming once a month for our groceries. And that's it. We're basically, we stay off the helicopter pad so they can just put the groceries at the end of the ho- helicopter pad and we can get them from there. Uh, yeah, no, there's no hikers because the parks is closed. So there's there's no hikers coming in. And uh, basically we're just, uh, but day-to-day things, everything's still the same as what uh, we would normally be doing. So nothing has really much, has changed much for us. I have one final question for you for bonus points. Uh, Okay. What have you enjoyed most about your years as a lighthouse keeper? Oh, I would say just, uh, you know, being able, the opportunity to work in such a beautiful place, uh, being closely connected with nature and, you know, where the weather and the tides basically determine what you do for the day, <laughs> being part of a Coast Guard family, uh, in a sense, because we're always working closely with the, you know, the Coast Guard pilots and ships and lifeboats and uh, radio crew and the storm watching. Um, we've had, you know, the biggest seas I've ever seen were a few years ago, we had 63 foot surf on an 11 foot tide and, and I've seen water spouts, just, you know, beautiful sunsets. It's every day is different. So it, it's, uh, I, I like that, uh, the variability and, and just how, you know, everything's, everything's changing all the time and just living amongst nature. I, I, I enjoy that the most. Well, your, your love for it certainly comes through, uh, in, uh, the conversation we've had today. And, uh, you know, it's such a pleasure talking to you. It's really, really been a a rare pleasure. So, Karen, Zacharik, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I hope we can talk again someday. I would love to visit there. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to swing that. But, uh, you know, talking with you and hearing firsthand what what it's like being there is the next best thing to actually being there. So, again, thank you so much, Karen. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Jeremy. And uh, yeah, we'll be, I'm sure we'll be in, in contact again. Our thanks to the Canadian Coast Guard and Fisheries and Oceans Canada for granting permission for today's interview. I really enjoyed my talk with Karen Zacharuk, and I hope to do more interviews with keepers at the staff Canadian light stations in the future. It's a fascinating way of life. Even if the lights and fog signals can work automatically, It makes sense to have people watching for mariners and hikers in trouble. 
as well as monitoring the weather and sea conditions. As always, we thank all of the members, staff, and volunteers at the United States Lighthouse Society. Visit uslhs.org to learn about all of the things the Society has to offer, including the quarterly journal, The Keeper's Log, the J. Candace Clifford Lighthouse Research Catalog, the Lighthouse Passport Program, domestic and international tours, and much more. Another thing I want to mention is that I've been producing some short little videos about different aspects of Lighthouse history that you can see on the Society's website at uslhs.org. You can also see them on the Society's YouTube channel. Just search for USLHS on YouTube to find the channel. There are videos about various lighthouses and lighthouse keepers. Each of them is about four to seven minutes long. And uh, at the time we're recording this at the end of June, there are 10 of those videos online. There are also some neat videos on the USLHS website and YouTube channel that are retrospectives of past tours the Society has run. The retrospectives have been done as Zoom events with tour leaders showing photos and talking about the highlights of the tours. The videos are very entertaining. It's worth checking them out. Again, they're all on the YouTube channel and they're also on the website at uslhs.org. We also thank everyone who's involved with the preservation of lighthouses or with the preservation of any kind of history. We're all on the same team. And if you listen to this podcast using Apple Podcasts, please be sure to rate and review it. As always, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine